Hello, welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm joined today by Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys on NFP's Benefits Compliance and Legal Team, and we are here on this podcast to discuss the ACA and the Republican efforts to repeal and replace the ACA. Uh, the podcast is a little bit of the law, a little bit of history, and we think it's a lot of fun. And today's topic is an interesting one that we're hearing more and more about and seems to be coming up in every Republican proposal and was even mentioned by President Trump himself in his speech to Congress. And that has to do with selling health insurance across state lines. Suzanne has a very interesting background working at a big law firm and working with insurance companies. So she brings a very unique perspective and one that's uh, going to be very good on this. Uh, but Suzanne, let's start with the basics here. What does that even mean to sell health insurance across state lines? And what is the reason that the Republicans are making such a big push for this? Yeah, let's level set. So to begin with the idea of selling across state lines, it means that an, an insurance carrier would be able to sell a health insurance product according to the rules of a single state of its choosing, regardless of where that customer lives. So currently, Insurers must abide by each state laws um, in which the policy is issued or in which the, the individual resides, depending on, of course, extraterritorial laws. But, but insurers are governed by those states' laws, and so they don't have the ability to necessarily just reach across those state lines and offer a product into another state. So proponents of this idea believe that it would promote regulatory competition because each state enacts laws, many of which include coverage mandates, um, it would give them an incentive to try to attract insurers into their state. When you have insurers in your state, you, you are able to recover premium taxes, thereby you, you increase revenue into your state. And so the idea is that the states want to attract carriers into their state. If they can reduce the regulatory burden associated with offering a product out of their state, more carriers would flock to their state. And so you would see the states competing with each other for those carriers. So the idea is that both insurers and consumers would benefit because insurers could offer a wider variety of products, um, including products that would avoid certain costly mandates, and that, and that uh, consumers would be able to buy products of their choosing. So if they felt like they were, um, didn't need that additional coverage, they could buy a catastrophic plan. If they were sicker and they needed richer benefits, they could buy that plan as well. One other argument or one other idea of proponents that are pushing the idea of selling across state lines is this idea that it could create a national or regional markets. And so you would have a larger pool of customers uh, by which you could spread risk, potentially benefiting some of the smaller states or some of those healthcare markets that are smaller um, and some of the markets that, that actually go across state lines. So that's level set. That's kind of what the gen genesis of what we're talking about today. Okay, those are some good ideas. Um, doesn't the ACA already regulate what the states can offer, though? Well, that's true. Um, in many respects, when we talk about selling across state lines, we're talking about the pre-ACA days because you had these heavy regulated states. So, for example, New Jersey or District of Columbia, and they impose numerous um, mandated benefits. And then you would have a state like Kentucky that allowed carriers to design plans in response to whatever the market demanded. So they may not cover things like acupuncture or fertility treatments, and so you, you might see less costly plans in those states. But now that the ACA is rolled out, there's a greater uniformity of insurance products across the state because the federal government came in and set kind of 
the minimum floor, so we don't see such varied insurance products state to state. Um, but, you know, it, it, along those lines, many people say don't expect significant um, reduction in cost by just eliminating uh, the mandated coverages. So really quickly, before we get to that um, that idea that it might not reduce the cost of health insurance, what are some of these mandates that we're talking about? Just some examples. Right. So so some of the examples could be coverage of autism, treatment, uh, fertility is a, is a popular one. Uh, bone marrow transplants, uh, minimum stays, like, for example, related to mastectomies. You could see it, it could relate to the provider. So you could see a mandate that they pay an acu someone who provides acupuncture or, excuse me, a chiropractic services um, the same rate as, as they would uh, pay a doctor, for example. Uh, acupuncture, I mentioned that because that is another common uh, mandated coverage. You could see also it extending to people that are covered, like non-custodial child coverage. So those are, are various ways that a state will step in and say, uh, insurance insurer, if you're going to offer a product in our state, you must provide coverage for these items. There's a, there's a host of them, but that just gives you a flavor for what it could look like. Yeah, so very real benefits we're talking about here that could actually mean, thing, mean something to different people in different states. So let's get back to the idea of we, some people don't expect that this uh, interstate sales will significantly reduce the cost of health insurance. Why is that? Well, uh, so yes, that idea is that you know, a health plan offered in one state would charge a higher premium than an identical plan in another state. And so, for example, let's, let's just look at uh, New York City, for example. The cost of living in New York City is higher. It's, the food is higher. The real estate's higher. Um, housing is higher. So all of those things help contribute to the cost of the actual medical services being provided. You have an older population in New York. You, you possibly have a sicker population in New York. Um, you have local physicians that may have additional degrees that, that may warrant additional um, specialty rates. You could have more expensive medical technologies that also drive up the cost of uh, coverage or of medical care. And so obviously when you have the cost of medical care increasing, that by, uh, by nature would increase the cost of the insurance coverage. So according to the NAIC, mandated benefits alone would only add about a 5% differential in cost. So by reducing those mandated coverages, you may only be looking at a reduction of cost by about 5%. So, um, so mandates, regulatory costs, those are two factors that affect insurance premiums. But like I said, the other things that could affect the cost of insurance would be geographic, the cost of the healthcare services themselves, how much those healthcare services are utilized, um, and the cross-state sales wouldn't address these kind of factors. Okay. So aside from not generating perhaps the amount of savings that some think it might, what are some of the other concerns that are coming up when we're discussing selling health insurance across state lines? Well, one of the greatest concerns is this idea of a segmented risk pool. So you have an out-of-state carrier that's offering this stripped-down plan, and it would lure these healthy individuals out of the existing risk pools into these stripped-down risk pools, leaving behind those sicker individuals that... Um, it would ultimately drive up the cost of those products because now you have a condensed risk pool of sicker individuals. So then what, what some say is to combat the loss of those healthy individuals, the carriers are going to start redesigning their plans to try to bring those healthy individuals back. And what that would look like is trying to reduce the cost of their products by redesigning plans, 
taking out additional coverages. And so some see this as a circular down spiral. You have the healthy people leaving, you have the redesign of products, you have lower coverages, higher cost for uh, those sicker individuals. And so whether this is a sky is falling kind of approach to this, it's, it remains to be seen, but those are some of the fears um, of this risk segmentation that this would create. Another concern is that, it, you know, as, as I, it's not another concern, but let me just restate it this way. So you have a low cost customer that is now gonna buy inexpensive coverage from a lightly regulated state. And you've got those high cost customers that are buying more generous coverage from the states with more extensive benefits and consumer protections, for example. Um, so the former group is going to have lower premiums. The, high, the more expensive group is going to have higher premiums because of the lack of those uh, healthy individuals in the risk pool. So the fear also then is not only would the carriers want to redesign their products, but the states would want to redesign the regulations, again, to keep people within their state. And so in order to remain competitive from a regulatory perspective, they would start reducing those mandates. And the fear then is that we would see uh, not adequate protection from a consumer standpoint or actually from a financial standpoint. I don't see that happening. I think regardless, they're going to have some stringent solvency standards in any state, and they will consider consumer protection and, and how that would be enforced on whichever state. So I, I don't see that as a as great a concern as I do the risk segmentation of having the healthy individuals only going to the cheaper products. But when we talk about this, aside from what we've talked about so far, one of the biggest challenges is that um, health coverage is inherently local. And so setting up these provider networks is a real barrier to entering into a new state. So if you think of it, to have negotiating power, you've got to have mass. And if you're a new carrier coming into a state, you don't have a large market. So you, you're not going to have the same negotiating power that an in-state carrier that already has a significant population would have. So the idea that you would be able to come into a state and offer a product that is less costly than a carrier that's currently there, is, it seems, it seems you know, undoable. Very interesting. So you've described a lot of the... Uh issues that we're sort of seeing now in our insurance market. Professor Spadley, let's get to a history <laughs> lesson here. How did we get to where we are? What's the background on this? Yeah, I love, you know, I always love looking at the background and seeing what, how we got to where we are now. But this, the idea of selling across state lines and states regulating insurance goes back to 1944. There was an antitrust case before the Supreme Court. The Attorney General had brought a case against Southeastern Underwriters Association under the Sherman Antitrust Act, and it was accusing this association, among other things, of price fixing. And one of the arguments within the case was, um, and this was obviously the argument put forth by the alliance, was that insurance is not commerce. And because it's not commerce, it doesn't fall under the Sherman Antitrust Act, and therefore they're allowed to do things like price fixing and sharing information and so forth. They lost that case. The government won. Um, but, and so out of that case, the, the carriers became very concerned about what they could and couldn't do. And they were concerned that they wouldn't be able to share information that would, for instance, like sharing historical loss data and things that help them actually set premiums appropriately, which they are allowed to do now. Um, and the states looked at it and said, wow, I wonder if this means that our ability to tax insurance would be considered invalid as an undue burden on interstate commerce now that the Supreme Court has ruled insurance as commerce. And so both the carriers and um, the states went to find a friendly 
face in Congress and have them enact legislation that would override the outcome of the Supreme Court case. And so they looked to Senators Pat McCarran of Nevada and Senator Homan Ferguson, who's a Republican out of Michigan, um, to find someone who would enact a bill for them on their behalf. Interestingly, Senator McCarran was one of the few Democrats who opposed the New Deal. Um, and he's also thought to be the model for the corrupt senator in The Godfather. So I always like to add those little pieces of information. Um, but what we found from that is that the McCarran-Ferguson Act was enacted, and it gave the powers back to the states to regulate the insurance rather than the federal government. It actually went very broad in terms of providing an exclusion from the antitrust laws of the federal government. And that has been narrowed somewhat through case law, but... The result really is that we have a patchwork of 50 different sets of state regulations governing insurance. And so it makes it very costly, for example, for a carrier to go into a new state because each state has their own financial solvency standards. They have their own benefits mandates, their premium rating rules, rules related to prompt payment of claims, um, different consumer protection rules. And so when a carrier goes into a new state, their product has to abide by those state-specific rules. And so it's costly to develop products that are unique to each state. Now, to take a step back for a second, when we're talking about this, remember that we're talking about a fixed insurance product. So if you're with the self-insured plans, this doesn't apply because they are already exempt from state regulation. Now, when we look forward, if we look to the ACA, when it came along, what it did is it modified the state's role in uh, how it regulated insurance products. And so the federal government came in and they set minimum requirements for private health insurance. And what that did is it reduced the variation of the insurance products offered throughout the states. And so, um, so for example, now that we've stated that benefit mandates, while it may only be a 5% on average cost factor, it is a factor in increasing the cost and coverage in some states. And so if you some states that have, for example, I mentioned New York or New Jersey have a number of different mandates, we could see the differential go up even more. Um, in addition, you did see, prior to the ACA, many states that would allow a carrier to deny coverage in the non-group market for an individual based on their health status. We know, obviously, that with the pre-existing condition exclusion, prohibition, um, and guaranteed issue, guaranteed renewability, that that was no longer allowed under the ACA. And the Republican proposals have said that they will continue that so that there will be coverage offered. But that obviously increases the cost of a product when you say, anybody can come in, I have to cover you regardless of your health status, or as before, I could deny coverage if you were a sick individual and it was going to drive up my rates. So um, we will have to see which one of those items are stripped away with a Republican proposal, but that gives you an idea of how those costs are affected. Right. Very interesting. And you've described sort of two costs there, just to clarify that there's the cost of the insurance company. Um, of getting into a different state, the licensure, licensure costs and application costs, all those. And then we've also talked about the actual mandates on the coverage that they would offer in that state. So interesting dichotomy or, or difference there between those two. Um, but looking at this, haven't states allowed insurers to sell across state lines under the ACA? Yes. And that's something that you hear a lot. You say they're already able to do that. So why aren't they doing it now? Well, under the ACA, you had a Section 1333 that permitted states to form these healthcare choice interstate compacts that would allow the insurers to sell policies in any state that was participating in the compact. Now, there was a regulatory, or there is, I should say, since it's still in place, a regulatory burden because these compacts would have to submit information to HHS, obtain their uh, HHS's approval, 
And so there, it, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. There was definitely some regulatory burden that many thought was keeping the carriers and the states out from um, wanting to move forward with that. The Under Section 1333, the insurers would have to remain subject to the market conduct of an unfair trade practices, um, network adequacy, consumer protections, dispute resolutions, and so forth of any state in which they sold. And they were also required to be licensed in that state. So again, that's another regulatory burden and costly burden that could prevent um, carriers from wanting to move forward with that. Um, What's interesting is that over the past decade, we have seen 21 states that have introduced legislation to sell across state lines, but only five have actually enacted it. So Rhode Island was the first state to pass an out-of-state purchasing law, and it was signed actually prior to the ACA. It was it was uh, designed to create a regional health insurance po- uh, compact that was similar to how the HCA's uh, 1333 design is. And then after that, we saw Wyoming in 2010, Georgia 2011, Kentucky in 2012, and Maine in 2014. So five states have actually enacted laws. Interestingly, we have not seen any carrier yet want to offer a product across state lines under those laws. So to clarify, you may be thinking, to yourself, but I have a United product and I know that my sister who lives in another state has a United product, so aren't they already doing that? What what that is, is insurers regularly provide products in multiple states, but again, as we mentioned, when you go into a state, you have to abide by the laws in that state. So those products, while it may be with the same carrier, had to be uniquely designed to comply with the laws in that state. Selling across state lines is different. It removes a lot of those restrictions and enables um, the products to to not have to abide by that particular state's laws. Okay, so um, let's help me understand this here. You've just said that the ACA allows cross-state sales, and we've actually had five states so far up until 2014 enact laws allowing products to be sold across state lines. So why haven't carriers gotten on board here? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. As I was mentioning before, there is still a significant barrier from a regulatory standpoint, both under licensure and under Section 1333 with having to obtain HHS approval. But there's also this issue of the high cost of creating provider networks in a new market. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. But, But all of those things, I think, have combined to make it still difficult to do. Right. So could, could could there be a different federal policy, perhaps, that, that might succeed where the ACA and the states have not? Yeah, you know, I think there could be. So it, you will see in just about every Republican proposal, it seems like they're talking about selling across state lines. And again, it sounds great. Let's increase competition. Let the market demands rule. And um, so what we saw, let's look to, for example, the American Health Care Reform Act of 2017. That was one that was actually had been introduced in 13 and in 15 reintroduced in early January, H.R. 277, introduced by the House Republican Study Committee, which is a caucus of Republican, of conservative Republicans. And it would not only, of course, repeal the HCA, excuse me, but it would also advance the sale of of health insurance across the lines um, and, excuse me, across state lines. It differed in two important ways. One, of course, it, it takes away those ACA minimum requirements, so it goes back to the idea of the, the variances in the state, letting the states control which mandates they want to impose. So again, we'd go back to seeing more of a variance in insurance products, which would lead to more of a variance potentially in cost. Um, second, because the proposal would not require 
the creation of these compacts that required HHS approval um, and potentially not require licensure in each state, it's less burdensome to create these interstate products. And so whether, you know, whether this, these differences are enough to encourage insurers to offer health products along across state lines remains to be seen. But at least some of the burdens associated with it would be reduced and there would be the ability to see potentially varying products um, offered. So nonetheless, there are a number of questions that still, you know, need to be answered and which I haven't really seen in the Republican proposals. So for example, which state would rule um, when it pertains to consumer protections? We have seen a little bit of discussion around that. In some situations, it would be the state in which the carrier resides or the, the state in which they're selling the product out of. But does that state really have an interest in consumers in another state? Um, secondly, we've seen potentially that the state in which the insured resides would still have oversight over consumer protection laws. And so they would be able to enforce the laws of the state from which the policy would issue, was issued. That's one idea. One of the biggest concerns, I think, is who's going to oversee the financial solvency of the carrier. I don't think that is, is as great a concern as it needs to be because I think um, that certainly the, the state in which the carrier is the resident state is going to have a strong interest in oversight of financial solvency. So I, I imagine they will look at market conduct and, and solvency requirements very um, carefully. But what about, for example, network adequacy? Does the, the state in which the policy is issued, do they care about the network in another state? I don't think so. So whose laws would apply and to make sure that there was an adequate network offered along with the insurance product? Um, so there's still many questions, still many details that have to be worked out to see if this is really a viable option. But, you know, it's, it potentially is. Yeah, those are some substantial questions that need to be sort of worked through here. It sounds like Republicans have their work cut out for them when it comes to solidifying a proposal here for uh, health insurance sales across state lines. Uh, what does all this mean for employers, Suzanne? Is this going to have a huge impact on employers if it were to go through? That is, is a really interesting question, and it probably will take several years to figure out. Because if you can imagine, this is a long-term solution. It is not an overnight solution. So if they flip the switch tomorrow and said, you can sell a product across state lines, it's still going to take, going to take time for carriers to have products to be able to sell in another state to design those products around what type of coverages they think need to be offered versus can they strip out and just offer a catastrophic plan to set up those networks in other states or at least rent a network in another state. Um, and then the states themselves will have to adjust the regulations. And as we all know, regulations take time. You have, you have laws that require a certain process for enacting uh, legislation and regulations in, your, in each state. And so all of this takes some time. And then um, to be able to see it unroll. I imagine it's gonna, it would take several years to be able to see whether this is effective. But for an employer's perspective, um, the idea is that they live in New York. There's obviously a higher cost for products in New York. Could they reach into Oklahoma and buy a cheaper product? Yes, potentially there's going to be cheaper products out there. So while it won't strip away all of the costs associated with their products because they live in New York and because the healthcare costs in their state are high, it could still allow for some flexibility in buying a cheaper product. And certainly if they're coming from, if the carriers are competitive and finding other ways to reduce costs, they, they might find more options at their disposal. So from an employer's perspective, 
I see it as a win if, uh, if this idea is viable and if it actually ends up reducing costs as they anticipate that it could. Very good. Last question for you, and then we'll let you off the hot seat. What do you think, in your opinion, are the chances that this would will uh, pass and be part of a Republican replacement plan? Yeah, I do think that it will be. It's been talked about enough from both, you know, obviously President Trump, and then it's been in enough Republican proposals, and I think they see it as kind of a low-hanging fruit. It's not going to have a lot of pushback. So while it may be implemented, you don't see a lot of carriers really supporting it or the states necessarily, but I don't know that they're going to have a strong opposition against it as they would other provisions potentially. So I do see it being included. Um, again, th whether it's actually successful or not, it will take several years, I think, to see. Very good. Well, thank you for your insight and expertise. And as we like to say here on the Benefits Compliance Podcast, that's, that's a wrap. A wrap. And thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time.